Good morning, Bethel Church, and uh, I am uh, delighted to open God's Word now with you. And uh, if, you, if I'm coming to you by video this morning, it is because part of our Mission Them strategy involves uh, the use of uh, technology and in our reaching out into Northwest Indiana. And so a few of our campuses are having this sermon by video today, including a couple of our services at Crown Point. So welcome to everybody, and blessings to all of you. Uh, do you like my shirt today? I don't know if you noticed, I'm a little different, but uh, I had a, you know, before the service, a few people like, what's going on, you know? And if you're visiting today, I am not a cult leader. <laughs> uh, this is a shirt that was given to me by our missionary, Abraham Thomas, and uh, he gave it to me some years ago, and he told me that this is a, uh, what an Indian would wear to a wedding. Okay, what an Indian would wear. So it's like a uh, party shirt, essentially, kind of a dre get dressed up, go out, have a great time type shirt. And the reason I'm wearing it is going to become evident here in just a moment. Life, okay, life. We all get one. You get one life. And Ecclesiastes, which is the series we've been teaching through, has pressed home a very sobering reality to uh, the human condition, and that is that death is certain and life is unpredictable. We have no idea how many days we have. We don't know what day will be our last day. Life means opportunity. Life means life. Death is the absence of opportunity. It is the end of opportunity. Hence, uh, we saw last week in verse 5 of chapter 9, better a living dog than a dead lion. Better, better a living chihuahua than a dead Simba. There's a lot of truth to that. Now, if you've been uh, following along in our series here in Ecclesiastes, you would expect when you come to the uh, seventh verse of chapter 9 that he would just, uh, Solomon just kind of go into sort of that normal Ecclesiastes doom and gloom, Right? more about how we're all going to die, and, you know, life has no meaning, therefore. It's all absurd and silly, and you sort of expect that. But wonderfully, in chapter 9, Solomon goes the opposite direction that you would expect. He doesn't go towards doom and gloom. He actually goes towards joy and living a life filled with en enjoyment and actually biblically sanctioning the savoring and the enjoying of the gifts that God has given to us in this one life that we have. So, let's get into our text today, chapter 9, verse 7, uh, and we'll be doing verses 7 through 10, just a little section. We've been doing these big sections today, just a little section, just uh, four verses. Here is, what, uh, here is what we see God's Word saying. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun." Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, 
to which you are going. This is a really cool passage here we have in front of us, and I'm super excited to be able to uh, teach from it today. And I wonder if you heard in it maybe the big point here, because the big point is that uh, rather than the brevity of life and the uncertainty of life be a sort of reason for somberness and sort of depression, he says actually the, the unpredictability of life ought to motivate us to make the most of every day, the old carpe diem, seize the moment, enjoy the moment, savor the moment, savor the things that God has given us. In other words, it ought to empower us to really be joyful in our living. You're going to die. You are going to die. And when you are dead, there are certain things that you love and enjoy right now that you don't get to do anymore. So you better enjoy it while you can. That's what this passage is getting at. And you see that even in the verbs. We could attack this passage a few ways. We could just look at the kind of action verbs here. Go, eat, drink, enjoy life, work with all your might. We could take it apart that way. It'd be fine if we did. We could also summarize the section with uh, a clever summary. I found one here from a commentator. The three W's, wine, wife, and work. As a preacher, I cut it. That's a clever way to approach that. But what I think is going to be most helpful here is to see this passage in the broad context of what we've already been learning about in Ecclesiastes. So remember this chart right here, okay? I put it up many times because it's so helpful in understanding what this book is all about. We have creation, we have fall, then you have the cross, okay? Ecclesiastes is written in between the fall and all the damning effects of the fall and before the cross. So Solomon is writing this. He, he's, he doesn't know about Jesus yet. He doesn't know about hope and resurrection and life and all the rest. He is trying to philosophize over the reality of the world that he sees around him. And so it's constantly looking back to creation in the good things that we find in life and looking back then in the fall to its effects and all the bad things we find in life. And uh, when we look at this chart, you say, well, how does man grapple with life kind of in between these two events? And if you look in human history, there are many approaches, but two of the big ones are hedonism. I'll talk about that first, okay? Hedonism. So man looks at his condition and says, if I'm going to die, then I'm going to get every drop of pleasure that I can in this life. Hedonism is the selfish pursuit of pleasure and joy. It is self-indulgence. It is uh, uh, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die. It enthrones pleasure on the human heart and labors for it, works for it, can't wait for it. It's sort of like weekends were made for Michelob, you know, that kind of like weekends are part, we just work, but it's all about the weekend and constantly looking for the next sensation, the next high, something that can fill that sort of moment in my heart. I was talking before the service with a guy that works at Crazy Kaplan's, okay? You want a, a crazy week at Crazy Kaplan's is this week, right? And he, I said, what's the most expensive firework that you sell? He said, well, the most expensive is 2000 He said, and that's a big box, but there's a, one firework that we sell that's $750, okay? Now, to me, that's a great example of the hedonistic lifestyle. $750, pow. 
gone. (laughs) Gone. So death, for the hedonist, doesn't motivate moderation. It motivates decadence, okay? The other approach is kind of the opposite of that. The other approach looks at life and the certainty of death, and they, they live with a constant morbid seriousness all the time, right? Que sera, sera, what will be, will be. We're, we're all going to die, so what's the point? Who cares? And they just walk around constantly the wet blanket on everything, right? Oh, yeah, you have a good time out there. You're going to be dead someday. It's sort of that grouchy neighbor guy, right? Everything's negative. Everything's pessimistic. The, philo- the philosophy is called fatalism, okay? What's the point? It's all fatalism. We're all going to die. So there's no meaning to anything anyway. Now, both of these are ultimately empty, okay? Because the hedonist, uh, as much as he's wanting to live for pleasure, that hedonist fails because life never offers enough pleasure. That law of diminishing returns kicks in on the hedonist. The fatalist fails because life uh, lived fatalistically has no real meaning. There's no hope. There's no, why would you want to live that way? It's a terrible way to live. And then along comes this little book tucked away in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes has something to say to the hedonist and something to say to the fatalist. Okay? The hedonist reads Ecclesiastes and he loves it because it connects with his own experience of the emptiness of pleasure and the fleeting nature of these kinds of things. He says, that's exactly right. That's the way that I've, that's the feeling and experience that I've had in my life. So the hedonist loves Ecclesiastes. The fatalist connects with Ecclesiastes' message of, you know, we're all chasing the wind and it's just life under the sun and it's all absurd. He loves it as well. And I think this is the power of Ecclesiastes is that it speaks to the human heart right where it needs it, okay? Right where it needs it. It inserts God into the prevailing philosophies of life that we see around us. Now, with that said, let's get into the text. And if you would turn my mic up just a little bit, it'll help my voice out today. Thank you. So let's get into this text a little bit. We, we see here that verses 7 through 10 come on the heels then of this quite harsh description about death and how death comes to all of us, right? So verse 7 there it flows here now into a therefore, into a kind of summary conclusion. We're all going to die, so what should we do? And again, we would expect Ecclesiastes to go, you know, go home and just, you know, smoke something, but... Instead, it begins with the word go, okay? Go, eat bread, drink wine, eat your bread with joy. Notice that, okay? There's a little repetition. Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, okay? Repetition there. For God has already approved what you do. All right, now I'm just gonna say this because I don't want the whole message to be on this. Some of you right now are looking and said, did the Bible just tell me to go drink wine? Okay, and you're fixating on that. You're gonna hear nothing else that I'm gonna say. Stop it, okay? Stop it. And this is not the only verse on the subject of alcohol in the Bible. We've done a big teaching series on this called Wine, Wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. I'll link to it in my First Thessalonians this week. Okay, so you can kind of go off on that whole subject. Don't get stumbled over 
over that one, uh, please. The point here is that eating bread and drinking whatever it is you like to drink, both of these are sanctioned by God, not simply the eating of it or the drinking of it, but the enjoying of the eating and the drinking of it. And that that also was part of God's plan in creation when he said, it is all very good. Who put those flavors into those drinks and into those food items? Who made it that way? And who designed our tongue with little receptors of happiness, taste buds, that send sensation to our brains and our hearts that goes, that's awesome, that's so good. God designed that, and also part of what he said, it is all very good. So God has already approved, not simply of food as nutrition, but food as pleasure and drink as pleasure. It is a good gift from God to us. And we all said, amen to that. Here's another passage that talks about just the, this is uh, known as common grace, God's common kindness, benevolent goodness to all of humanity. It's not just Christians that enjoy a good steak, right? Here's Psalm 104, verse 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. God makes all of that. We have the fall, right? But many of those things remain after the fall. They, they weren't lost in the fall. We continue to taste and enjoy what Adam and Eve tasted and enjoyed prior to the fall. God allowed that to continue. They make our face shine. They gladden our hearts. You ever have a great meal or something? Just that you sort of push back from the table and you're like, ah, right? It just feels so good, doesn't it? That's a gift from God, okay? And that joy, that contentment that we feel in that, also a gift from God. It doesn't mean we're unspiritual when we're sipping our coffee and going, oh, that is awesome. That is so awesome. In fact, godly people do that. Again, so God didn't merely sanction the eating and the drinking, but sanction and approves our happiness in it, which is why the first word of verse 7 is go, okay? Go. It means be active in this. Don't just wait for that steak to show up on your plate, right? Go buy it, cook it, salt it, eat it to the glory of God, and then push back and go, Thank you, God. Now, is it just food and drink? No. They just keep getting better in this passage. Okay, It gets even better than that. Look at what he says next. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Okay, so now we're talking about dress and hygiene and sort of that personal experience of of uh, sensory pleasure with our body here. Let your garments always be white. You know, a couple thousand years ago, everybody didn't have a washing machine in their house. And they didn't have, nobody invented bleach yet, okay? So if you had a garment 
And, and again, they're not living in homes like we lived in. This is very rudimentary type of living. So if you had a garment that was white, you kept it very protected. It was reserved for very special occasions. A wedding, a, you know, a, a kind of party, something that is festive, right? So you'd pull out your party wedding outfit and put it on and You'd go, and just your clothing would indicate a kind of gladness about life. You're ready to celebrate. You're ready to have a good time. Dress means something in that way. Dress up, he says here, and enjoy. Don't let oil be lacking on your head. Again, we're talking thousands of years ago here, where they didn't have a bed, bath, and beyond on every corner, right, in the town. So to have, <clears throat> to have something that would... Make your skin feel good, moisturize a little bit. Right before this service, a woman came out of the bathroom. I, I went to shake her hand. She goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'm moisturizing. I said, that's exactly what my sermon is about today. Moisturize away. Enjoy that <clears throat> moisture. Moisturize <clears throat> your hands. Remember Mary that anointed Jesus with the, uh, with the oil, and the disciples are like, oh, what are you doing? Because oil was so rare. It was so expensive. Uh, the, the wise men brought myrrh to Jesus, one of the three gifts uh, at when he was born, myrrh being another kind of very expensive, moisturizing type oil. And oil was just, when you put oil on your head, it was, it, was a, it, was like, it was like cologne. It was like a kind of like, I am making my body, I'm experiencing sort of cleanness and freshness, I'm smelling good, I'm ready to go out, I'm ready to live my life. That's what it meant when you put on white and put a little oil on. So, in our day, this is a luxury moisturizer, a fine cologne. He's saying, ladies, exfoliate. You've never heard that word in a sermon before, be honest. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever used it. <laughs> exfoliate, moisturize, do your hair, gussy yourselves up, go out and have a great time, enjoy your life. Amen? Some of you have been looking for a verse to allow you to go out and do that. You've done it all these years, but you feel guilty about it, right? I'm going to put on this cologne, but don't let anybody know. No, it's to be enjoyed and to be celebrated. And this keeps getting better, okay? It's like those commercials. Uh, wait, not just Ginsu knives, but more, okay? <clears throat> Look at verse 9. Here's what he says. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days, now here's a little bit of reality, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. <clears throat> Enjoy your wife. Husbands, listen to your pastor. Enjoy your wife. Now I think it goes the other way here. Wives, enjoy your husband. And Solomon here, he's making a certain assumption here that you know, he's, he's writing to somebody who is married, and we've spent a lot of time here at Bethel Church over the years out of my singleness teaching on the glory of singleness, and there's a whole kind of application that we could do there. Again, I don't have time for that here, but in the general course of human history, marriage and husbands and wives, big part of human society, obviously, <clears throat> and uh, all of this flowing from creation, okay? This is God's idea. God makes Adam, <clears throat> and he looks at Adam, two things were deficient. 
He needed a helper and he needed a companion. And God crafted Eve to perfectly fulfill both of those roles. She is his helpmate and she is his life companion. The perfect complement to Adam's humanity, to his masculinity, and to his sexuality. And what this is getting at is more of the sexuality than the companionship, frankly, okay? This is, again, the Bible being starkly human, if I can say it this way. This is sort of uh, a, an abbreviate. This is one verse summary of Song of Solomon, the whole book, the other book that he wrote, okay? Enjoy your wife. God wanted Adam to enjoy Eve and Eve to enjoy Adam. As a result of the fall, this gets wonky in marriage. But the overall truth that we should aspire to is the enjoyment of one another and the enjoyment of being married to one another. And this includes all dimensions of marriage, okay? Friendship. I've only been married almost four years now, and I've learned that there's a lot of, I heard somebody say one time, there's a lot of living between the loving. A lot of living between the loving. And a lot of that living is just kind of doing life together. And, you know, hey, can you go pick this up? And, this, you know, that kind of stuff. That, enjoy that having somebody in your life to do life with. Enjoy the companionship and enjoy the marital intimacy, which God also sh- sanctioned and called good. Here's one commentator's, frankly, I'll use again the word stark. Here's his stark summary of of what Solomon is saying here. And the reason that pastors quote other people is they can say things and uh, we don't get blamed for it. So uh, here is what the commentator said. This is what Solomon is saying. With gratitude, eat your bread, drink your wine, dress in white, and make a little love to your wife. Why? Because you're going to (laughs) die. Savor every day, every good gift that God gives to you. That's what this text is encouraging. And again, why, why, why? And Solomon hasn't forgotten that sort of the first six verses of the chapter when he inserts there, all the days of your vain life. And there's Ecclesiastes again, right? Don't forget, it's vain, right? You're here, you're gone. You're like a vapor. You're like smoke and sort of, you're like a $750 firework, You're there, and poof, you're gone. So enjoy the ride. (laughs) That illustration's getting better all the time. That same commentator adds this. They may turn to love their wives, not because sexual love is forever, but rather because it is not. That's a great statement there. In the world of creatures, we may only enjoy what we do not worship. Now, that last little phrase there, I want to go off on a rabbit trail. Now, some of you call it a rabbit trail. Others, hopefully, a brilliant excursus here in this uh, message. Because here is the challenge that we have when it comes to talking like this, food and drink and sex and other good things that God gives, is that if you don't hear this correctly, you could leave here and really make a mess of things in your life. So let's make sure we understand, as creatures, how do we put these good gifts in their proper place? 
Okay? So, who do we turn to for the answer to this? I turn to C.S. Lewis, who has written brilliantly on this subject. And he talks about the importance of first things and second things. Okay? First things and second things. I'm going to read a quote from him here where he basically says, you have to have a first thing in its first place to enjoy the second thing fully. If you ever make the second thing a first thing, not only do you lose the joy of the first thing, but the second things in the end are dissatisfying. So listen to this quote, and let me just kind of talk about this, because it's very practical, I think, to life. Here's what Lewis says. The woman, and we're talking about uh, a dog having a pet. Okay, so some of you will connect with this first illustration. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It is a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious, so long as the other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so arrange your life, it is sometimes feasible, that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her and what happens. Of course, this law has been discovered before and it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. That's a really great quote, isn't it? Okay, so did you catch what he's saying there? Listen, there are first things and there are second things. Okay, really, in terms of our belief system here and what we think the Bible teaches, there is a first person and then there are secondary things. Okay, and that first person is God, right? God is ultimate. God is the ultimate thing. So when God gives the command that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not only is he giving us proper morality, he is giving us a guide to actually enjoying all the other things that we like in life. Because if we ever love the second thing with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Not only do we not have the joy of loving God, but that second thing put in the place of God ultimately becomes disappointing to us. The Bible calls that an idol. A good thing made an ultimate thing. But you lose both things when we do that. And you just look around the world around us and everyone, they're all generally, apart from God, they are running after second things. They're thinking the second thing made an ultimate thing will ultimately be a satisfying thing, but in the end, that second thing made an ultimate thing is a dissatisfying thing. So you look at all the addictions and all the codependencies and and all of the kind of uh, destructive behaviors that flow from some kind of inner belief system. What is going on? 
It is the fruit of living for a second thing. Or as Lewis says, arranging the deck chairs of your, the ship of your life all so that you can focus on that one person. If you're a dating couple here, listen. If you make your boyfriend or girlfriend the sum focus of your life, you are going to be miserable. Now, you might fake it out, get married, but somewhere along the line, you're going to discover that dude or that babe isn't worth living for because you weren't made to live for the spouse or the dog or the cat. Dare I say that? Live for the cat and be miserable because human beings weren't made to live for cats and dogs or anything else, any other creature. Romans 1, mankind always worshiping created things rather than the creator, okay? And Ecclesiastes here is calling us to the proper enjoyment of the secondary thing, understanding that God is the primary thing. And I wonder today, if you look in your heart, friend, listen, if you look in your heart and you're sad, okay? You're just like sad. Life has been disappointing. You've run after this. You've partied. You've, you know, these people that say, you know, if there's, if there's anything you could do, I've done it. Maybe that's you today. And yet here you are at church looking for something. Why do you feel the way that you do inwardly? The Bible comes along and Ecclesiastes comes along and says, the reason that you feel so empty is that you have been living for secondary things. And is it possible that the sadness and ache that you have in your heart longing for something else might actually draw you for the first time in your life to the first thing, okay? To the first thing or the first person, which is God. And here's where the gospel flows into Ecclesiastes with such beauty and power because how can a sinner make God the first thing? And the answer is we can't, right? We can't. We try, right? I'm going to get religious. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to try to somehow show myself that God's the most important thing in my life. And yet we're constantly making idols out of created things. As one guy wrote, he said, our hearts are idol factories, right? Churning out idol after idol. We can't do it ourselves. What we need is for God to come and to do it for us. And we see that in why Jesus came into this world. He came into the world to set right many things, but to set right idol-worshiping human beings living in the despair of that and to make a way for us to be reconciled with God, or to say it this way, for God to once again be our first thing. And when God is our first thing, all the other things find their proper place. When the sun is the sun, all the planets find their proper orbit around it. What do I need to do? Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by him. No man places God first in his heart, truly except by faith in Jesus. He is the only way to that path. And how often God uses the despair of the alcoholic and the drug addict and the sex addict and the this addict and the that addict to get us to the end of ourselves where all of a sudden we're like, I have done every hedonistic pleasure that you can think of and yet it's not enough. 
And now suddenly the love of God through his son Jesus and Jesus' love for us dying on the cross and the power of that in the resurrection draws us again to faith and to put things first that need to be first. I've illustrated it this way that with pictures, you know, we, we, we love pictures, and the reason we love the picture is because we love the person in the picture. Dating couples, if you break up, the first thing to go are the pictures, right? <laughs> I don't love him anymore. Out go these pictures, right? You're on your Facebook page, delete, 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 delete. <laughs> is it the picture? No, it's the person. But when you love the person, you always love the picture. I've been in some of your homes, and on the mantle, there's Grandma, old picture, she's been dead for a long time. Grandma, grandpa, maybe a brother killed in the war, that sort of sepia-colored military picture. And it remains on the mantle for decades because you still love that person, okay? And that picture reflects him. And as we live in this world with all these good things that God has given to us, they're all pictures. And to be enjoyed because we love the one it reflects. And that's how you eat your steak with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, enjoy your wife without making them ultimate things, seeing them as secondary things. So with that, let's talk about Ecclesiastes and a guide to joy. Here's the first thing. When it comes to this, we must have first things first. And it's just the point I was just making here. We must have first things first. Unhappiness flows when we live for a secondary thing. Go and live for your steak or your food, obsess over your food, and all of a sudden you're not that happy anymore, right? We're made for God. So we must have first things first. The second thing is that we, we have to realize, and this is more of a message, more of a word here for Christians, that God is, you know, People have this perspective of God, like he's up in heaven and he's just like, in his, in his heart, what he wants for us is he wants us to be sad, right? And so he brings trials into our life and he's like, God, you hate me and you want me to just all the time be serious, walking around like, yeah, there's a God. But this is not the picture that the Bible portrays. It certainly isn't the example that Jesus provides uh, for us uh, with his life. He wants us to live a life of joy and a life of gladness. And I think a lot of us miss this, okay? We allow our theology to make us sad. That's bad theology that makes you sad. It ought to make us joyous. Again, what's the first word in the text? Go, okay? Go. It doesn't, it's not passive. This means go and vigorously enjoy and savor and be about it and be planning your vacations and run along the beach and be, sing and be glad. I mean, sort of the hills are alive with the sound of music, wasn't in my notes, comes to me right now. Sort of that, we should all be skipping around. Like Julia Roberts. Or no, Julia, what's her name? Julie Andrews, I got it backwards. Whatever it is. Run around glad-heartedly. And there, there ought not be guilt or shame in this. And don't let... Bad theology Christians around you guilt you for enjoying your life. In the DeWitt house, we've, we've celebrated two birthdays in June. 
Both my daughters had, are June bugs, okay? They both had birthdays in June. And I've not, I'm not long parent, but I've learned enough about the parenting thing that um, when you give a gift to your child, it's amazing how happy I get when I see them excited, especially Kiralee. Madeline at this point is kind of like, you know, <laughs> but she's one, okay? But with Kiralee, she, when, when, when she gets excited about a gift that I give her, I'm like as excited as she's excited in it. But all of us parents, we know the experience already. When you buy a gift, Christmas, birthday, whatever it is, and then you, you give it to your child, and they open it, and they're like, you know, and they just sort of set it aside. And you're like, sweetheart, don't you, don't you like that gift? No. You know, and you're like, sorry. You know, it's, I feel like a failure as a parent when they set the gift aside. But on the other hand, when you give a child a gift and you can tell they're genuinely excited about it, and like days later, they're still playing with the thing, I get such a kick out of seeing her do that. Now, if I ever suspect that she's actually sort of doing it to work me over in order to get more gifts, like if, if, she's, if, that, if I actually think she loves the Elsa doll more than me, Elsa's going to find herself in the garbage bin, isn't she? Okay. And God in heaven is similar, friends. He didn't give us all of these wonderful foods and drinks and sensory experiences with our bodies uh, to set them aside and to just sort of like, oh, he delights when we are enjoying them. Enjoy your life, okay? Enjoy your life. Clean up. Take care of yourselves. For some of us, a great step forward would be a breath mist, right? Just start there and begin to live a kind of life of freshness and gladness and joy. It doesn't mean you're not spiritual. In fact, it means you're more spiritual. God has given us these wonderful gifts. And that's why verse 10 is there. And this is a verse I think my dad made me memorize when I was younger, right? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Sort of this work ethic. It sounds like a good a Dutchman would raise his son to memorize that verse. But in context, what it's actually saying, beyond just whatever, you know, work, whatever you do, whatever you are experiencing, give it everything you've got. Enjoy it. Savor it. Again, why? You're going to die. And where you're going, Sheol here, you're not going to be able to do many of these things. So you better enjoy it now. You had better enjoy it today. Savor it. And I think this just applies to two different kinds of Christians, okay? The first kind of Christian here is Mr. Sunshine. And there are some people, they're like Mr. Sunshine. And every, it's all about, man, I'm all about sort of the, the feelings and the sensations and I just, I kind of live sort of this carefree lifestyle where, hey man, where's the next party? Let's hang out. Let's just sort of do our thing. Mr. Sunshine gets the joy, but he doesn't get the seriousness of it. He is wasting his life and his time. The other Christian is the too serious one. This is the Christian. In his closet, he doesn't have a garment of white. It's all sackcloth and ashes, right? He'll never go out and buy a, a latte. 
And if you ask him why, you say, why would I buy a latte latte when people are dying and going to hell? And you walk away from going, wow, you know, it's everything's doom and gloom. They walk around the church just frowning because they want people to know how serious they are about their faith, you know. And Ecclesiastes has something for both of these, right? What are we doing here? Some of us aren't serious enough. Some of, us, some of us are far too serious. And the wisdom in this passage is to look back to creation and to realize that, that God has blessed these gifts and he enjoys us enjoying them. Therefore, go and do it. But also to look for, forward to our certain death and to savor every sweet moment that God gives us in this life, which if properly understood, makes all our joys serious ones. And that's Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10.